Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to our time together. We really look forward to these moments we have, just you and us, scripture, maybe a tea, a postum. Some of you might even have coffee and the word. We are excited to talk about hope. And we've been talking this quarter about the crucible. But today, today we hear how God speaks to his prophets in the language and the grammar of hope. Before we have our conversation, though, let's start with a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for your love, your compassion. Thank you because you fill us, not only with your presence and with your love, and with your grace, but you fill us with hope. So we thank you so much for staying with and in our conversations, and we would just pray, Lord, that in our time together, we might discover something new about who you are. We pray these things so that you may continue to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Joey Oswald Chambers has a really, really nice statement in this lesson mm. uh, as he talks about why. And when we ask why, God, don't you do something, God is doing something according to Chambers. He is revealing himself to us. And so I think as we talk today about this idea of hope, it's probably apropos to say that one of the ways in which we get through these crucibles isn't just hope, but it's the hope that we are learning something about who God is. Yeah, I love that quote. Um, have you been asking God what is he what he is going to do? He will never tell you. God does not tell you what he's going to do. He reveals to you who he is. And you see that really well through the book of Job that mm -hmm. we've been discussing on and off throughout these lessons. It's that God never answers Job's questions. Instead, he reveals to him mm. who he is. And at the end of that, Job is just left in awe and said, mm. I've been trying to seek answers that I have no rights to, that questions that I can't even comprehend. Mm. Um, and he's left in awe of God. And I think that is probably the place where we start when we speak about hope or mm. anything else that we've been speaking about this quarter. It's always really tempting to give ready-made answers. Yeah. Um, we live in a space where we, people of faith, are expected to have answers. Uh, whether it's answers to the reasons uh, why the world is in the state that it's in right now. People mm. will turn and say, why is this happening? And conspiracy theorists and theorists and people who are enamored by apocalyptic visions will provide their answers. The end is really coming this time. Um, other people will want answers as to why their individual worlds are collapsing, uh, whether it's on a grave site or in a medical office or a hospital room, you hear why is this happening? And it's really tempting to say, well, God has a plan. Stay, hold fast, stay strong. I find that um, that lack of humility often impedes our capacity to hope mm -hmm. because the hope is never that a pain will dissipate or disappear that's not what we hope for what we hope for is that we will be 
empathetic with other people's pain mm. and that in our own pain, in our own suffering, we might find some sense of peace um, as, as we walk through it. Um, and that ultimately the hope is that in the end we'll understand why, mm. um, not while we're on this side of eternity, but at some point somehow we'll understand why. And so I think part of being hopeful is learning how to be silent. <laughs> wow, that's so powerful. Part of being hopeful is learning how to be silent. Yeah, because it must be within our human natures to want to speak into these spaces where there are no ready-made answers mm -hmm. and make ready-made answers mm -hmm. just to alleviate our discomfort. And yet what you seem to be pointing out is that by doing that, by almost being cocky about our knowledge or our ability to understand the situation and make these ready-made answers, we're doing damage to ourselves and we're damaging the people yeah. around us too. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's I think, so well said. I, I think that's why the passage uh, that this week looked at in, in Habakkuk and several other passages. I mean, the lesson took us to Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of them, uh, to some degree or another, are dealing with the experience of exile, whether it's Babylonian exile, mm -hmm. uh, or in Isaiah's case, the Assyrian invasion and the destabilizing effect that that has on their view of God. Ultimately, the complaint is that those answers aren't coming. Um, mm. The passage in Habakkuk starts with a question, mm. uh, how long, Lord? Mm. Uh, which is a prophetic, it's a prophetic prayer that is often uttered by people. How long, O oh Lord? We hear that prophetic prayer echoed in the book of Revelation as the saints again will say, how long, O oh Lord? How long? And what I love about both this passage and the, and the expression uh, that is being quoted from this passage in the book of Revelation is that the answer to the question, how long, O Lord, never comes temporally. Mm. Um, it comes experientially. And so in other words, God's not going to say, hey, it's going to be a month or a week or a day or a year. Um, but God is listening uh, and not only is he listening, but he is walking through that experience, whether the, it be the experience of exile yeah. or the experience of persecution in the case of uh, the book of Revelation. Yeah, there's so much, there's so much longing in that phrase, right? How long, O oh Lord, will I call for your help? Mm. Um, it's not so much focused on time. It's it, there is a deep desire there that's being reflected there. It kind of reminds me of when I leave my home to go to a Bible study or go to church. Sometimes my daughter will will ask me, "Well, how long will you be gone?" And it's not so much a question of, "Okay, I I want the exact minutes and hours that you'll be gone." She's asking, really, what seems to be asking, "Do you care about me?" Do you want to be with me like I want to be with you, mm -hmm. right? That's the longing in the heart. And it seems that that's the longing that's expressed yeah. here is not so much how long, God, are you going to make me wait? But do you care for me at all that I'm in pain, mm -hmm. right? And God seems to answer, understands that longing. So he doesn't answer the how long question in a temporal way, like you said. He answers it by saying, my presence is with mm -hmm. you. That even in the pain, I'm not letting you go because I love you so much. That's beautifully stated. And it, it allows us, I think, to have a conversation 
with other texts in the Old Testament particularly. So Lesson talks a little bit, for example, about Isaiah, which is intended to be a book that is trying to make sense of the Assyrian experience. But the book itself begins with this beautiful phrase that seems to be answering uh, Habakkuk's complaint. Uh, the phrase reads, and just the Hebrew is beautiful, Nachmu, Nachmu, Kol Ami. Mm -hmm. Comfort, comfort, oh my people. And this idea of Kol Ami is this intimate group of people that mm -hmm. I have selected out of the whole world. And God, again, throughout Isaiah, isn't offering an answer to the temporal question like you've, you've mentioned. God is offering an experience, and it's simply the experience of being comforted by knowing that your presence is with us, even in the midst of the crucible. And we've said this a lot, mm -hmm. but I think we haven't touched on, on the reality that to have somebody going through the experience with you is to have hope mm -hmm. that the experience will change or that the experience can get better or that there is a certain sense of meaning within the experience. That's so true. I mean, it, it, before God speaks into this, into their pain, there, there seems to be, um, in Isaiah chapter 41, there's a period where God seems to say, well, people, when they have fear, they turn to different things. Mm -hmm. They turn to each other. They turn to their neighbors. They turn, they circle their wagons. They, they turn to their gods that they build these idols, um, to try to give us them a sense of security. But God seems to say, no, those are, those are not where security comes from. That's not where the absence of fear comes from. It comes from understanding that, that I am with you. Mm -hmm. Um, um, fear, courage does not come from the absence of fear, but the presence of God mm -hmm. in their lives. And that, like you said, it, that theme runs through all of the passages that we are looking at it at this lesson, the Isaiah one, the Jeremiah one, the Habakkuk one here, Job's is, is not so much about God answering the question, how long, how much longer will this last or answering the question, um, uh, why are you doing this to us? He's just saying, Regardless of why, regardless of how long it lasts, I am with you. And I think that's a good place to simply accept and be humble about what we know and what we don't know. Mm. And the reality is we don't know why. Yeah. I mean, we can have and, and we can get into several really interesting thought experiments um, on theodicy, which is, which is, by the way, your big word for the day, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Um, theodicy is simply, within Christian theology, the attempt at defending the character of God. So we can do that. Mm. Um, and I think those are interesting thought experiments to engage in. I think uh, they're helpful in understanding how human beings relate to God. They're not helpful, though, at... I, I don't think, at creating hope amidst the hopelessness. Mm. Because the question isn't really at the heart of the debate. The question really isn't, is there a God? Mm. I mean, if you really ask the question, if you really poignantly attempt to take away and deconstruct everything we say about a God in the universe and creation and all these things, the question really isn't, is there a God? Uh, the argument, there's an argument, by the way, out there. You don't have to remember this, friends. It's an argument from causality. Um, 
and Thomas Aquinas, among others, uh, made this argument, right? It says, look, if we were, if we live in a causal world, then there needs to be a prima cause, right? Something that is not contingent on anything else. And ideologically, that makes sense. Otherwise, you would have kind of this infinite regression. Mm -hmm. So I can convince you that there is a God. That's not the question, though. The question is, what kind of God is it? Mm. What kind of God is in the world when you look around and you see all this pain and all this suffering? Mm. And it seems like the thread that we're hearing the prophets call us back to is... It is, it's a God that is present. Mm -hmm. It's a God that is palpable. It's a God that is here. It's a God that is so present that he too has been marred by suffering. And because of that, we can have hope. See, we don't have hope mm. based on some rational theologically manufactured elegant argument although again there should be uh, space for those in our conversation we have hope based on the fact that god has par god partakes in our suffering in a mm -hmm. real experiential way and that gives him the capacity to say i am with you he says i am with you because he's experienced the suffering hasn't he mm, it's so true yeah and so we we return right back to what we often do with the incarnation of God, mm. right? That's the ultimate expression of God saying that I am with you, mm. that I am willing to walk through your pain with you, that I care so deeply about you that I'm willing to let go of everything that heaven meant and come down here mm. as a human and live among you and die so that you could mm. have a chance to be with me again. I mean, that's the desire that drives the creation of the sanctuary, as mm -hmm. we've talked about, right? That that I may dwell among them, right? It's this desire to be with us, which to a certain extent is surprising because of how we treat God often <laughs> and how often we push him away. And yet God doesn't end that. Despite how many times we push him away, he continues to work at being with us mm. and caring for us, mm. where... Um, and, and like you said, those logical arguments, they have a place, they have a place, but their place probably isn't at a hospital bedside as a loved one is, is passing away. They're, they're not, its place is not when, um, tragedy strikes and we lose our jobs and we're dealing with grappling with the, the challenge of taking care of our families. They have their place, but in those moments, what we really long for is to understand, to know that God cares about mm. us and that he is with us, walking through those mm. spaces with us. And I think that's the nuance that needs to be understood because so often we fall into this trap. We believe that God is supreme, sovereign, mm. ruler of this world. We believe that. And as Christians, we confess that, and rightly so. However, just because God's supreme sovereign ruler of this world doesn't mean that our theology needs to be triumphalistic. Mm. And too often, I think we fall into the temptation of creating 
a theological language that is really triumphalistic. And the problem mm. with triumphalistic language is that, that is, it's ill-equipped to deal with suffering. And it's also ill-equipped to feed us with that nourishment that is hope th that keeps us going amidst the suffering. Mm. Probably a much better picture of God. And I think uh, that's why I love the fact that we are living in kind of these three prophetic passages. Because you see the theological language that they've created become ill-equipped to deal with their current circumstances. Mm. And so at this point, there's mm. the prophets have three choices. They can disregard the experience of God. In other words, they can say, well, maybe... Maybe God isn't God. Maybe the Babylonian God is God. Maybe Marduk is God. Or maybe the Assyrian God is God. Um, after all, we were soundly defeated mm -hmm. on the field of battle. So they can do that. They can also uh, say, well, uh, maybe it's our fault. Um, and maybe God's angry at us. And so they, you, you create kind of this enmity between God and, and his creation. And there's some of that, to be sure, in the prophets. I think the third option is to say, maybe our language is ill-equipped. Hmm. Maybe our language was too triumphalistic, and maybe we need a retreat and look at that. And if you if you kind of scratch and dig, um, you can see kind of, they had their language, and their language was contingent on this idea that God had selected this people, and God had selected their rulers. And that ensured that nobody, because God dwelt hmm. on in Jerusalem, nobody could take that city. And obviously that's not true. Hmm. And so instead of saying, well, God isn't God, or instead of looking at themselves and, and kind of doing this self-flagellation that we often are, are known to do, um, they start saying, well, let's look at our theology. Because at this moment, what we need is hope, and our theological language isn't engendering hope. Mm, wow. So their whole paradigm of who God was and what God was doing was insufficient to contain the experience that mm. they would be experiencing, mm -hmm. this experience of loss, the experience of the city of Jerusalem's God's city being mm -hmm. destroyed, God's temple being raised mm -hmm. to the ground. Um, that that experience would shatter their whole paradigm of what was what could be believed and what could be true mm. and um and in, in that moment they're either left with rejecting god altogether with saying that we did something terribly wrong which part of it is but also um maybe like the prophets are doing helping them to see this shattering not as god losing but god using the, mm. that situation to teach them something about him. Wow, that's really profoundly stated. God using, not God losing. Absolutely. And so I think that piece can stay with us mm. because God is saying, look, whatever faith language you want to use, whatever doctrinal propositions you want to make, whatever creeds uh, you want to institute, whatever fundamental beliefs, 28 or 27 or 30 or 40 or 50 or however many you think is, you think is apropos to have, that's okay. Mm. 
as long as the purpose of these creeds or these statements or these theological edifices that we're building engender hope, mm-hmm. and the moment that they are that they that they are you know unable to continue feeding human mm-hmm. the human experience of suffering with hope, wow. then it's not God that we need to look at, and it's not. Yes, it's ourselves, um, but we're not. We need to realize again, not being triumphalistic and being humble. We're not that powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we, we can really mess up our lives and we can really mess up the world, but we're not powerful enough to mess up God's ultimate design for the world. Mm. So, yes, there should be some self-examination, but that only comes when you, when you have been energized by the experience of hope. Mm. And so, first and foremost, before seeing how we can change, we need to change the way we speak about God. Wow. And yet what keeps us from being able to do that, changing the way that we speak about God, is we get a little bit married to these paradigms, right? To these, to these, this set of language, mm-hmm. these words, this, um, and it's very hard for us to separate our paradigm from the reality of who God right. is, right? Right. So how do we do that? How do we have a more flexible paradigm? How do we... Um, avoid making the same mistake that the Israelites and the uh, Judeans did over and over Mm. again, where they kind of got stuck in this view and then God would send prophets and say, no, that's not who I am. And then they would kill the prophets or reject (laughs) the prophets because, because they didn't fit their paradigm of who God was. How do we, how do we avoid becoming so rigid and static? I think you realize that, that you, God is much more complex than, than we give them credit for. Mm. And that shouldn't be that difficult to, to understand. Mm. And yet we, we fail to do so so often. So we like the idea, or Israel likes the idea of God as the ruler and the sovereign king. But the problem is, yes, that, that paradigm is correct, mm. but it's not complete. And so we focus on the correctness at the expense of the completeness. And an analogy that, that might be helpful is you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are a tennis player. Um, but if that's all you are, mm-hmm. or if that's all I allow you to be, mm-hmm. then my experience of you sometimes isn't as useful. If your girls only have the experience of you as a tennis player, mm-hmm. then their relationship with you is going to suffer. Yeah. Whereas, yes, that picture of Pastor Joey as a tennis player is is correct, mm. but it's not complete. Wow. You know, when you say that, instinctively my mind goes to the fact that we humans resist being put into boxes, mm-hmm. right? We don't like it right. when people say, you're only this mm-hmm. way, right? That, that Something within me roars up when people say, oh, you're always this way. Mm-hmm. And yet we tend to do that to God. Mm-hmm. We try to put him in those mm-hmm. neat little boxes and say, well, God is always this way because maybe because it makes us comfortable, because then it makes God predictable. I don't know. Mm. So we tend to put him in these boxes and you're saying we need to realize that God is bigger than that. He's bigger than any one of our boxes that we create for him. Yeah, and sometimes God, whatever language of God you're trying to use needs to be relevant to the circumstances that you're experiencing. 
um, the idea of relevance isn't to try and change who God is. Mm. It is to say that ultimately, as people of faith, our primary purpose isn't to be right about God. Yeah. It's to it's to be merciful towards each other. And when somebody is suffering, yeah. the, the thing they need the most is hope, not theological correctness, <laughs> right? And the Bible struggles with this. Um, so if you read, for example, Ezekiel, after the experience of the destruction of the temple, yeah. for Ezekiel, this is a traumatic event, right? And so he sees mm. God literally leaving Jerusalem atop a chariot. Um, and that, that image is helpful in the sense that it's true. Yes, God did leave because God is greater than Jerusalem. Mm. But I'm wondering if... Ezekiel wouldn't have been more successful in his ministry if he also shared the image of God being sent into the exile with Israel, hmm. which we later see right in, in the Gospels. Yeah. Uh, the, the experience, for example, of Jesus fleeing into Egypt kind of as a callback to the experience of exile that uh. his people have had. I'm wondering if that doesn't make, hmm. uh, if, if a combination of that imagery wouldn't have made uh, the ministry of the prophets more successful. I don't know. Wow. And you see God doing this over and over throughout history mm -hmm. where God is challenging people to expand their language, expand their view of who God is. I mean, we see that with Jesus when he mm -hmm. comes to this earth and right. he challenges the, fair, the religious leaders of his time and saying, you think God is this way, but he actually is mm -hmm. this way. He does that to his disciples. I mean, he did that to the Adventists, mm. right? We thought we ha we had this exact <laughs> way of seeing who, like God, uh, Daniel 14, uh, 8, 14 tells us that yeah. God would return in 1844, mm -hmm. in October of 18. We believe, oh, actually 43 first and then 44. And then there were some people that when God didn't come mm. physically to this earth in his second coming, it shattered their faith. Mm -hmm. They shattered their faith in the in in prophecy. Shattered their faith in God to some people, um, but those that eventually became sad, Seventh Day Adventists actually created a new language, mm -hmm. a new paradigm to describe that experience. And we we point to Revelation and and John eating that bitter mm -hmm. scroll as being uh, uh, the paradigm that we right. that we experienced. And so we shifted. We shifted so that. Our view of who God was and what was happening in this um, world and what we believed about prophecy fit what God was actually doing. Right. And yet we, we and we were humble about that, which yeah. is the most phenomenal thing about the, er, the early. Now you, you, you mentioned Adventism, not me this time. <laughs> but what is fascinating about the early Adventist church is mm. the, Advent, the early Adventist church in the first 30 years of its history changed what they believed on pretty much everything. Yeah. First, they were now against organization, and then 30 years later, they were like, hey, we probably sort of should organize. They were deeply, deeply against this idea that people who hadn't accepted the Millerite message were going to be saved, and 30 years later, they changed that. Yeah. So Adventism was experiencing, I think, a lot of shifting, and that shifting, I don't think, was a bad thing. I think it was a result of them trying to be relevant. You talk about kind of how we adapted our language. Nowhere is that, I think, more clear 
than, than with Edson, Hahn, and Crozier, right? They take this, this imagery of, you mentioned the sanctuary early on, they take this imagery and they appropriate it and then they apply it in order to create hope. Right. So their primary purpose with using using sanctuary language is saying, I know you're disappointed. There's still hope. Mm. Now, the question is, what happens when that language ceases to promote and produce hope mm. and it starts to produce and promote rigidity theologically, um, ex ex exclusion of other people and fear? Mm. Is the is the is the ultimate goal of our theological language to produce correctness, or is it to produce hope? Mm. And those things might not be uh, mutually exclusive, but sometimes they are. Mm -hmm. The message in the sanctuary message that Edson Hahn and Crozier received was the correct message for their time because its primary purpose was to engender hope. Yeah. The question is. If, the, if said message ceases to do that, do we need again to shift the paradigm? Wow. Wow. Now we're going into <laughs> some controversial waters, but that that is true. I mean, we see God reframing language mm -hmm. over and over again in Scripture, and it's not God losing, right? Again, like we said, it's not God losing, it's He's using. He's, he's, he's not saying that the language of the past was wrong. Mm -hmm. He said he's just saying it's not. It's just not big enough to describe what is happening mm -hmm. now. And so he takes those same metaphors and then infuses new meaning. Mm -hmm. Does the fact that God no longer requires circumcision mean that circumcision was was wrong in mm -hmm. the past? No, circumcision was what God asked of His people in the past, but it's not what He asks of His Correct. people in the present. Right, so God, you see God taking these things and infusing new mm. meaning to them. The Passover, He does that for His His disciples. Right, the Passover was something that God gave the people of God, but at the Last Supper, God, inf Jesus infuses new meaning in that, and so we don't celebrate the Passover like like right. the ancient the ancient followers of God did in the Old Testament, right? God infused new meaning and new language to describe a new experience and a new thing that he's doing. And so can we be flexible for to allow God to do that to us even now? And flexibility is for that flexibility and I I love that you say can we be flexible? That that flexibility is for our benefit. Because every instance that you mentioned, which I think you're absolutely right in noting circumcision, uh, dietary laws, um, the Passover, and uh, a lot of the Levitical code, it's not that that was wrong. I think that's important to say. We don't want to abandon that. We want to say that truth isn't if if truth is only a rational concept that you can factually point to then truth becomes the property of someone mm. and it's very dangerous when we want to appropriate truth mm. so what if the ultimate purpose of truth is not to make us right intellectually but to make us right relationally mm. and so 
the thing that you need in order to have a relationship that withstands the question, how long, Lord, must I call for you help, but you do not listen, isn't a theologically correct answer rationally. It's a relationally correct answer, and it is, and that answer needs to be pregnant with hope. So again, the purpose of truth is to generate hope. The purpose of theology of God talk is to generate hope. Yeah. And because that's the ultimate purpose, it's more, it's more about what do you need to hear right now? Uh, when your children are afraid and they say, Dad, I am really, really afraid that I might lose you. Do they need to hear, well, you know what, sweetheart, I am immortal, and at some point you will lose me. <laughs> Is that true? Yes, it's true. it's true, but that's not, but we don't do it. We would never dream trying to placate a child's fear in that way because that's not what they need to hear. And so we say, Daddy and mommy love you deeply, and at, and no, you will not lose us right now. You will mm -hmm. not. You're not. Uh, we will be with you. Mm -hmm. That's what they need to hear. So that's what. And is that truth? Yeah, it is true. It's true in a different sense. It's relationally true. Mom and dad will be with you, are here for you, always. That's true. Mm. Does that mean we're gonna live forever? No. Mm. So we inherently and intuitively know that. Truth is a much more, it's a much broader concept, and we utilize it in order to engender, and to engender relational stability and hope. So if we do that in our relationship with our kids, why is it so shocking that God doesn't, that God would do that with us in the, in the ways that you're describing? That's so true. Wow. Wow. Because at the heart of the message of Scripture is not just... Um, a message of you have to understand the scientific um, applications of who God mm. is, logically, philosophically, describe God. That's not so. You're going to take an exam at the end of the uh, end mm. of time and and discover whether you understand God or that's not really the goal of Scripture. The goal of Scripture that the theme that runs through it that many many theologians, many people have pointed out. Ellen White has pointed out throughout her writings. Uh, on scripture is that there is this theme of love, mm -hmm. right? That God loves us. So that relational aspect, he cares for us so deeply that just like in this, uh, this all of these passages in this lessons, that he wants to be with us. Mm. He loves us so deeply that he wants to be with us. So it, there is that relational aspect. So what is God, when we talk about truth, what is God trying to teach us about him right now mm -hmm. so that it can engender hope and love within us mm -hmm. right now in our context. Mm -hmm. And maybe that aspect of who God is is different than the aspect that Moses needed to hear or Abraham needed to mm -hmm. hear or the uh, people of Israel needed to hear. Maybe that is different. And so we need a new language and a new way to describe that experience. Mm -hmm. Is that is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. I would just... I would just probably say a different language mm. rather than a new language mm. because lang because language itself is loaded. And yeah. so to say something is new means that it's a, an improvement yeah. on that which came before it. Yeah. And I don't think that's what you're saying. And yeah. that's definitely not what I'm saying. What we're saying is at this moment in your story with God, 
God is going to choose, because ultimately it's God's prerogative to choose, yeah. to communicate with you in different ways. And you need to be open for, for that and to that because it's ultimately in your benefit, isn't it? Yeah. And that doesn't just happen on a macro level. It seems like it happens on an individual mm -hmm. level too, that there is, as we go through different experiences, as in life, mm -hmm. right? It changes us. So as we change, our view of God needs to adjust right. to that change. Otherwise, if we're stuck with the same view of God that we had when we were five years old, it's not it's not right. Mm. It's not not that 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 view of God was wrong when mm. we were five years old. That's that's the view of God we needed when we were five mm -hmm. years old. But as we get older, we need a different view of God. We need different different language mm -hmm. to describe God that that can accommodate the experiences mm. that we are having right now. And we see that with Job, right? Mm, right. Like with Job, when God first comes and points Job out to Satan in Job chapter one, verse eight. It says, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. I mean, if God ever said this about me, <laughs> I'd be like, I've arrived, yes, you're, right? You're, you're, like you're, I, that is, that's where I want to be, right? So God says this about Job and yet, when Job goes through this experience of suffering and comes out the other side, God doesn't say, well, Job, you know enough about me that I'm going to give you all the answers and we're, you yeah. and me are going to be fine. Yeah. No. When he comes out of that suffering experience, he realizes, it's like God realizes that that, that experience changed Job. Mm -hmm. And so he needs to now expand Job's view of who he is to accommodate mm. the experience that he went mm. through. Before this, he had never experienced suffering mm -hmm. and 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 loss like he did in those in those moments. I hope that none of us experienced that right. degree of loss. Oh yes. But he experiences such deep loss and such deep hurt. He needs a bigger view of who God mm -hmm. is. So that's what God does for him. He doesn't just give him his old view of God and say, "This is how now this old view of God can fit in right. this new experience." No, right. he says. You need a new language. You wow. need a new paradigm. Wow. Yes. I mean, all I can say to that is yes and pass the offering. Right? <laughs> um, and yet I know that when we hear this, these ideas of changing and shifting and mm -hmm. different and new, all of those words are deeply, deeply loaded. Yeah. And in a world where truth and culture and correctness seem to be shifting with the sands, I know that there is a question that, that keeps coming up, at least in my internal dialogue. I know that in some, in some of our viewers' internal dialogue, and that is, well, what do we build on? Hmm. Like We need to have something solid, for a firm foundation that we can build on if hmm. everything becomes relative. Hmm then we lose our compass and i i just i just don't understand joey why the idea of building on something is all has always been for us adventists contingent on having a theological model that we can point to hmm. So when we're talking about, hey, what do we build on? What we really mean is, hey, give me three or four points 
<laughs> that I can that I can circle or I can underline, and then I'll build my f my faith life on these points. Because we are, by definition, and I love this about Adventists, we're a rational people. Mm. So we want some rational takeaway. Uh, crib sheet notes that we can put in our pocket and say we build on this mm. I think what, what we're trying to say today by looking at all of this is that God is saying well if you're going to build on anything why not build on hope mm. and it, you see that Maybe not at the surface, but if, if you look closely enough, you see that in, in Job's story. There's no reason to complain for 38 chapters. <laughs> I had this conversation with someone just last week. Hmm. If you read the book of Job, Job is mad. He's right to be mad. And he's going to let you know that he's mad. But he's never, he never stops engaging mm. with God. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a really, really important lesson in there. So Job will say, well, I mean, I would bring a lawsuit up to you, Yahweh, mm. but you will blow me away for you are so much more powerful than I am. And that's actually what happens at the end of the mm -hmm. book, right? So if Job already has seen the movie and knows how the movie ends, then why go through these 38 chapters? Mm -hmm. And the only answer that I can come up with is that even by knowing the right theology, Job is hoping that, as we have said during our conversation, that God is engaged in a relational and in an in a experiential level. And that's the only reason why you pray to God. Yeah. Um, and so you, you will pray 38 chapters of pain and sometimes vitriol because you deeply believe that God is listening. It reminds me of a, of a story the old rabbis used to tell about a rabbi that gets shipwrecked. So he's shipwrecked. Um, he has two sons and his wife, and they're all on this island. And the first son dies of exposure second son dies of dehydration and now it's just him and his wife and the wife finally falls prey to to the environment and after each one of his family members passes this rabbi says i praise god uh, praise elohim and at the end he switches tactics a little bit and he's saying yahweh i know what you're trying to do much like Job, in a very Jobin way, he says, Yahweh, I know you're trying to discourage me, but I will praise you anyway. Mm. And so there's, there's this deep-seated hope that kind of is an act of protest, even amidst suffering, that isn't rational. Mm. But then maybe it doesn't need to be. Maybe that's a good mm. a bedrock to start building on. Wow. Wow, Miguel, you've given us a lot to think about there. Yeah, it, it does seem that we as Adventists, ironically, because we are a non-creedal people, we sort of still want to gravitate toward a creed. Mm -hmm. We want those three points that we know will never change, will always be true, and that we can then build the rest of our theology upon. Mm -hmm. But you're pointing out that 
even that desire to build on the foundation of a creed is perhaps the wrong foundation to build on. This is not saying that that all truth is, we're not saying that all truth is no. relative because we're saying that there are there is absolute truth. God is who God is. Mm -hmm. The challenge is we humans, we lived through a very limited view of who God is. As much as we know from scripture, as much as we know from our own personal experiences, how much over centuries and millennia people have discussed God, we still have a very limited view of who God is. Mm -hmm. The truth about God, if the truth of God, about God is, you know, the, the Pacific Ocean, then, you know, we have perhaps like a thimble full mm -hmm. of truth, right? And sometimes the thimble full of truth that we have is not the thimble full of truth we need mm -hmm. in order to accommodate the experience we're going through and still have a lasting relationship with God and still experience love from God and, and to have hope mm -hmm. in what God is doing for us in the future. And perhaps the reason why we sometimes turn away um, our younger generations at times is because we want them to hold on to the same thimble mm. full that we've had mm. that has helped us and is not wrong because mm -hmm. it's still a part of a yeah. part of the truth of who God is but they need a different thimble mm -hmm. they need a th different thimble full in order to to accommodate the experiences that they're going through mm -hmm. we know that at every generation there are, are defining moments defining experiences and those defining experiences are different than the ones that we went through mm -hmm. right like a defining experience for us, 9-11 was a defining experience for us, right? Defining experience for a younger gen the millennial generation was the advent of the internet. Mm -hmm. That was a huge defining experience for them. And so all of these things changes the way the experiences and the way that we see the world. And so there's a different aspect of the truth mm -hmm. of God that they need to hold. And all we seem to be saying is allow for people to, to get their own thimbleful so that they can have hope and and a relationship with God. Well, now you're the one that's saying just controversial stuff. <laughs> but it's true. It's not just it's controversial, but it's true. Yeah. And I know, I know again because I've heard it because I deal with it. It's it's an internal dialogue that I have. When I hear what you're saying and I'm like, "Yes, that's that's something I can I can live with. Mm -hmm. I can accept. It's something that will be make us humble in our theology, and it is going to make our theology responsive to suffering um, in a way that is redeeming. Mm -hmm. And then I say, "Wow. Well, is there any danger in making my experience?" Right, this experience that is creating the need for a thimble of truth. Is there any danger in making my experience the experience the ultimate arbitrator of truth? Mm. And we've heard this a lot. Mm. But Joey, my experience is all I have. Mm -hmm. And to try to, to say that I can somehow disjoin my experience from my identity, my experience from the way I I interact with God, my experience from the way I interact, I, I understand God, is quite frankly foolhardy. Mm -hmm. All I have is my experience. And because God is experiential, God says, that's okay. I want to be relevant to that experience. Mm -hmm. And because I want to be relevant to that experience, I want to craft a language theologically 
that will be that will be profitable in its capacity to engender truth. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps instead of saying, well, prove these particular beliefs that you have by citing chapter and verse, perhaps a better way of building uh, something that is sturdy enough to withstand the pressures from a cultural milieu that says you ultimately are what matters, mm-hmm. um, that's sturdy enough to, to withstand that, and yet flexible enough to be responsive to our differing experience, is to ask the question, how are my beliefs, both individual and corporate, how are they promoting a culture of hope mm. versus a culture of fear? Perhaps that's a really good way of starting to build something that, again, is sturdy but flexible. Wow, I love that. I love how you bring us back to that culture of hope because we've wandered kind of afar from, <laughs> from, 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 from the lesson study, but this is where all that we've discussed touches on what the lesson has been talking about, which is that... The experiences we go through with suffering, it changes us, right? Which means that our view of who God is needs to expand to accommodate our those new experiences. And the way that we expand that is by clinging to hope and not just to the old paradigms, but to say, how can I still have, have hope for the future and, um, and love for who God is and experience his love for me in the experiences that I've gone through mm. right now? And it's not always going to be comfortable because like, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis, God is a lion. He's a great lion. Um, and in, in this, in this quote, the person is asking, well, I'm feeling nervous about meeting that lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver replies, who says anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. I tell you. Oh, Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. That's, that's, I think a really good way of, of ending. Faith isn't safe. Mm. It's never been safe. It's not supposed to be faith safe. Mm. But what a great life experience walking with God. Bye. Joey, pray us out. Let's pray. Our good, our good and gracious God, you are so good. Even though you're not always safe, even though you're not always understandable, you are good. And to you, our good God, we cling. When During these times when our perspectives are shattered, when there is a lot to fear, when the foundations of our faith seem to rumble, we still cling to you knowing that you are big enough to handle that. And we ask that you expand our view of who you are so that we can accommodate that you are still good, you are still gracious, even in these experiences that are so difficult. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And now, friends, as you consider who this great God is, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for he is going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. We are looking forward to see how the lion of the tribe of Judah fills your life with hope everlasting. We'll see you next week.